Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic. Last time we met HK-47, listened to a never-ending story, and saw how Tatooine was utterly and permanently sterilized by the Rakatan Infinite Empire. Now, in episode 27, we will meet our ninth and final companion, talk at length about the Grey Jedi, and find out how the landscape of Kashyyyk was fundamentally altered by out-of-control Rakatan terraforming. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in Legends. Uh, we have a real quick clarification. Uh, it came to our attention after last episode that some people might not know what glassing means uh, when we use it when we use it in passing to refer to a heavily bombarded world. We've talked about the Mandalorians leaving Sirocco, a world of glass craters, after they nuked it in 3963. And obviously, last episode we discussed uh, what the Rakata did to Tatooine in 27793. It's also a common trope in sci-fi, and the phrase was probably used most famously in the Halo series of video games. In all of these examples, glassing refers to an orbital bombardment so powerful and so hot that it completely sterilizes the world and kills anything that isn't hiding deep underground. It can be achieved through thermonuclear... Nuclear? God! thermonuclear detonations, weaponized plasma barrages, or really any ordnance that can heat the planet's surface, the planet's soil sufficiently and for, and for a long enough time. In some cases, such as Tatooine, the glass would eventually fracture and turn to sand. Perhaps surprisingly, this is a sci-fi concept borrowed from the real from real world observations. When soil becomes heated enough or hot enough, the silica and other minerals uh, begin to melt down and then fuse together into glass. Now, it would take untold amounts of power and destruction to actually glass a planet in real life because the boiling point of glass is between 1400 and 1600 degrees Celsius, and it has to maintain that heat for enough time to melt and then fuse. But we wanted you to know anyway. You can see um, an example of this um, if you look online for Trinitite or if you ever are um, in New Mexico and visit the Trinity site where the first atomic bomb was ever detonated. There's still a little bit of it around. But what you get is this kind of green, glassy rock. Um, what's left now is mostly like grains of sand size, but it was sand pulled up into the mushroom cloud melted together and then that rained down um and the pictures of the site afterwards have this like ring this disc of green glass basically um where the detonation happened and it also spread it all over and it's radioactive and all this stuff but uh nuking a real thing um we know what the after effects are those are the small nukes to turn things into glass um and that's just what happens when you pull sand into a fireball Fun, topical, learning all sorts of things in this episode already. So, to move away from the uh, real-life weapons of war to the fictional ones, we are going to pick up where we left off. We are in Knights of the Old Republic, Part 5. We're going to be in Tatooine briefly, and then move on to Kashyyyk. When last we left Tatooine, the group gained a new companion named HK-47 to translate for Revan as he attempted to communicate with the Sand People and gain access to the Eastern Dune Sea. There, Revan and Bastila killed a crate dragon and found Tatooine's star map. We also left a bunch of side quests and companion quests hanging. Finally, HK-47 translated the storyteller's history of the Sand People for Revan, which we used as a halfway clever narrative device to shoehorn in the history of the Rakatan Infinite Empire and discuss how Tatooine came to be a planetary sandbox. We're going to rejoin the story in the Sand People Enclave, finish up some of what we didn't finish on Tatooine from last time, and then catch the rest when we briefly return to complete some side quests before going to Korriban. Then we're going to Kashyyyk. Ah, right, so picking up where we left. Revan and HK are HK-47 are in the Sand People Enclave. They're still listening to the storyteller's tales, and they're joined by Mission Vow as the stories of their nomadic millennia-long pilgrimage are finally mercifully finished. Before departing, the trio finds the cells where the Sand People keep their prisoners, or more accurately, where they keep their slaves. 
What the hell, Sand People Chieftain? We went to all this trouble to help you guys out and you keep slaves? <sighs> the Sand People are cancelled. We would definitely still help them over Circa any day. We should have mentioned it last episode. Some moral ambiguities here in this in this universe. In one cell, there are three Jawas who are part of Aziz's tribe. Aziz is the Jawa that Revan and HK-47 meet at the gates of Anchorhead, leading out into the Dune Sea. We obviously talked to Aziz while we were in Anchorhead the first time because backtracking would suck. Revan uses the clout he earned with the Sand People for helping them out with the Vaporators to have the Jawas freed and they return to Aziz safe and sound. The other slave is a bit more tricky. Mission Val is a great companion, and she's a cool kid who helped save the galaxy at the age of 14. Mission's excellence is even more amazing when you consider what an utter dipshit her brother Griff is. Uh, Mission's companion loyalty quest begins on Dantooine where Griff's ex-girlfriend Lena runs into the group if Mission is in the party and Revan has already asked her about her brother. Griff left his little sister alone on Terrace when she was 12, and he lied to her about it, too. For years, Mission had imagined Lena as a vile temptress who split up the family by whispering in Griff's ear, but that seems to have been incorrect. Lena says that she offered to pay for Mission's trip with them, but Griff told her that Mission declined to leave Terrace, and he left. Mission protested, but Lena makes some good points. Griff didn't tell her where they were going, and he began to blame Lena for his failures, just like he had done with Mission when she was younger. It seems that Lena was totally correct about Griff when Revan, Mission, and HK-47 find Griff Vow in the same people enclave. He's being held captive after working with Zerka. When Mission confronts Griff about Lena's story, he confesses, saying that he had to leave Terrace to avoid all his debts, and he always planned to come back for his little sister. The issue with Griff is that he blames everyone else for his problems, and also he's an idiot. As with the Jawas, Revan uses his clout to free Griff Vow, who leaves to rejoin Zerka in Anchorhead. When Revan and Mission visit him there, Griff has a sweet idea for reproducing Teresian Ale which is now one of the rarest and most expensive liquors in the galaxy after the destruction of its only source, Terrace. He asks Revan to retrieve some tat glands, which the Jedi agrees to consider, though Mission is wary of her brother. We will pick this back up on Kashyyyk, which is the only place in the galaxy to get it, but Mission is already learning the hard lesson not to trust or put much faith in her brother. Character Profile, HK-47. Now that we're finally done with all of the Sand People missions, we must introduce the droid who made it all possible. It's only a matter of time until we got to the most popular droid in Star Wars history. Don't try to say it's R2, we all know it's not. An intoxicating combination of C-3PO's pedantry, Bender from Futurama's hatred of humans, and Drax the Destroyer's hyper-literalism, HK-47 is one of the high points of Knights of the Old Republic. Originally conceived as a badass C-3PO, HK-47's physical design changed little from first concept art. However, the character's personality was initially very different in HK's trademark vocal tick of announcing his own mode of speech before almost every interaction was roundly disliked by the team of Bioware. Darag O'Farrell, the longtime director of voiceover work for Star Wars video games, recounts that HK-47 was originally written as a far more serious and foreboding evil rather than the deadpan misanthropic humor we came to know and love. When O'Farrell and HK-47 voice actor Christopher DeMori began to record the character's original lines, they changed them on the fly after the original tone fell flat. Um, so that gave the droid the characteristic humor that we know and love. However, the team at Bioware hated the new direction for the character, and they wanted it changed back. But O'Farrell was too busy at the time to fix the voiceover. So when he brought the issue back up near the end of the project, he was told that the Knights of the Republic team now loved uh, HK's tone and demeanor, and they didn't want him to change it. By then, the interactions had been written by David Geiner to match O'Farrell and Tabori's on-the-fly changes. Um, this anecdote comes from Alex Kane's making-of book, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. HK-47 also shares another similarity with C-3PO. Each was built by their master, who abandoned them for many years and then found them again later. Another small nod from Knights of the Old Republic to The Phantom Menace. 
HK-47 was originally built by Darth Revan in 3960, just after the Battle of Malachor V. In the wake of the mass shadow generator's devastation, Revan saw that subtler methods of taking out his political enemies were required. HK-47 would serve his master faithfully through much of the Jedi Civil War. He committed hundreds of political assassinations at Revan's behest, but according to Sith assassination droid protocols, his memory was wiped at the start of each mission and was only restored after the droid's successful return. If the droid's master died, the droid was Im- would immediately shut down. While that does make a lot of sense, it's also transparently a plot to keep Revan and HK-47 in the dark until the identity of his creator and original master reveal uh, until after the reveal. In 3960, HK-47 was integral in helping Revan and Malak locate the Starforge and then protecting that secret through assassinations. Sometime between 3959 and 3957, after seeing HK-47's success with covert assassinations, Revan built a secret droid factory on Telos IV to mass-produce HK-50 assassination droids. The factory would not begin production until much later due to Revan's capture by the Jedi. That factory also plays a very large role in Knights of the Old Republic 2, just like HK-47 does. While he was still in Darth Revan's service, HK-47 coined the pejorative term meatbag when asked for his opinion on Darth Malak. The response utterly annoyed Malak and amused Revan to the point that he reprogrammed HK-47 to refer to all sentient organic life forms as meatbags. In his last mission before Revan's capture, HK-47 went into Mandalorian space to take out the new Mandalore. We don't know his title, but he reigned for a few years between 3960 and 3951, so we'll just call him Mandalore the Unidentified. HK-47 was captured by another Mandalorian looking to move up the ranks quickly and was reprogrammed and given the order to kill Mandalore the Unidentified. However, the droid failed and was captured then turned back on his on the usurper hk-47 would later come to consider this kill whatever its circumstances to be the poorest performance of his thousands of assassinations and murders after this hk-47 shut down because his former master the mandalorian usurper was now dead in 3956 the deactivated droid was sold to bochaba the hut a crime lord who lived on the world slayheron yes the name Slaheron that was cut from the game, which we will come back to. HK-47 committed numerous assassinations for Bochaba, at one point racking up 322 kills in a single year. However, Bochaba was murdered by rivals, and HK shut down as per his protocols. He was then sold to a senator on Coruscant, who used the droid to assassinate his numerous political enemies, and very nearly ascended to the Supreme Chancellorship. At some point, the senator realized his wife was cheating on him and ordered HK-47 to kill both his wife and her lover. At the last moment, the senator had a change of heart and threw himself between HK-47 blaster, sorry, HK-47's blaster and his wife. With his master now dead, HK-47 went to shutdown and was sold to a Sistec Corp employee by the senator's wife. The Sistec employee then sent HK-47 on a series of assassinations intended to take down a rival company that was threatening Sistec's money and ascend the corporate ladder for his help. In the end, however, the employee realized that the opposing company had actually just been a secret division of Sistec and HK-47 had just killed 104 Sistec employees. HK's master was now the last officer left at Sistec and thus stood next in line to lead the company. Instead, the officer attacked HK-47 in a misplaced fit of rage after learning of his mistake, the officer attacked with a metal writing implement, puncturing one of HK-47's servos, which electrocuted the man to death and caused damage to the droid's protocols. After this, HK-47 shut down and was again it was sold to Yukalaka, an Athorian who owned a droid ship in Anchorhead on Tatooine. Yukalaka fit HK-47 for a restraining bolt, which further limited access to his memory core in addition to all the shutdowns. Revan was later shocked to learn HK directly or indirectly caused the death of every master he had after Revan. Canon Alert 28. While HK-47 has not been canonized, he serves as the direct inspiration for a droid who appears, uh, who does appear in the canon, Mr. Bones. 
originally appearing in Chuck Wendig's Aftermath trilogy, Mr. Bones was a heavily modified B-1 battle droid scavenged by a young boy named Timon Wexley, a.k.a. Snap Wexley from The Force Awakens. But some t- built sometime before 5ABY, Mr. Bones served as, we- as Wexley's bodyguard and friend and was a ruthless murder bot to everyone besides Snap and, and later his mother, Nora Wexley. Because the droid was programmed with numerous unique uh, features, he developed a more human nature and seemed to be a surrogate father for Snap after his father was taken captive by the Empire. During the Battle of Jakku in 5 ABY, Mr. Bones gave his life to save Snap, killing five Imperials in the process. Now, you're probably worry, wondering how this selfless droid could be related to HK-47, and the answer is, perhaps surprisingly, Chuck Wendig. During a panel in Dragon Con, at Dragon Con 2016, Wendig confirmed that he tried to include HK-47 in the Aftermath trilogy as an interlude, but the idea was shot down by the Lucasfilm story group. Uh, however, Wendig did get one reference in during the final book in the trilogy, Empire's End. There, Mr. Bones experiences a glitch, which causes his voice to change to a strange accent and say, quote, Commentary. I say we blast the meat bag and save, the tr- and save you the trouble, Master. End quote. After the glitch, Mr. Bones reverted to normal, allowing Wendig to sneak in a direct reference to his favorite Star Wars character. HK-47 also presumably served as the inspiration for the murderous protocol droid from the Dr. Aphra comic, Triple Zero. While Triple Zero has the stilted... while Triple Zero has the stilted movement of C-3PO, his personality is that of gleeful sadist who hates all organics just like HK-47. Though there's no confirmation on this one, it just seems like a logical conclusion to make. But again, uh, just to be clear, none of this makes HK-47 canonical. Yet. Alright, so in-game, we're almost done on Tatooine, but the allure of Kandoros Ordo's companion loyalty mission is too great. While on Dantooine, Kanderis had a chance encounter with an old acquaintance just like Mission, a Mandalorian named Jackie confronted Ordo and Revan. Jackie has been angry at Kanderis for 20 years since the two first fought together, or fought together at the First Battle of Althea in 3976 at the outset of the Mandalorian Wars. There, Ordo led a complement of Mandalorian soldiers at number 10 to 1, but managed to win the day. Kanderis originally planned to take his soldiers on a flanking maneuver around the overwhelming Althiri force, but it split in two. Ordo, a sound military mind if ever there was one, saw the opening that the Althiri move created and led his soldiers into the breach. The Mandalorians crossed the center of the opposition forces, with Kanderis killing the Althiri commander, which quickly ended the fighting and put off further loss of life. Unfortunately, Ordo's tactical decision meant that about 10% of his forces were left open and subsequently obliterated by the Altheri before the fighting ended. Indeed, only one soldier, Jagi, survived the onslaught, and he blamed Kandris for the deaths. Believed that Ordo ordered the attack and abandoned his position to win glory for himself, Jagi nursed this grudge for 20 years until meeting Kandris on Dantooine and challenging him to an honor duel. Kandris couldn't abide anyone slandering his honor and agreed. Thus, Revan and Ordo find Jaggy and two Rodian thugs waiting in the Dune Sea. Before the duel could begin, Revan is able to reason with Jaggy, explaining the breach and ending the skirmish early. Later, when he found out, Ordo was distraught. Upon learning the truth, Jaggy was ashamed of his actions and committed suicide in front of Revan and Ordo in the Dune Sea of Tatooine. Jaggi's suicide affected Kandris deeply, causing him to seek a greater purpose in life and making him Revan's first fully loyal non-droid companion. Of course, that's only because we didn't yet return to Bastila's mother Helena after finding uh, her late husband's holocron slash datapad in the Crate Dragon and Star Map Cave. However, it's time to rectify that too. In the Eastern Dune Sea, Revan urged Bastila to to consider reconciliation with her mother, though the younger Shan Shan still had reservations. Back in the cantina, the two Shan women, who were more alike than they'd ever liked to admit, began to bicker again. 
Bastila still believed her mother was faking her illness, but Revan saw that wasn't the case. Here, Helena is clearly dying and in some pain, which causes Revan to ask Bastila to reconsider her hardline stance. Bastila, remembering her Jedi training, sucks it up and apologizes before giving her father's holocron over. Helena immediately apologizes for her actions and for not being a better mother. She says that Bastila's hunter father always pursued greater hunts for the added money because he wanted a better life for his wife and daughter. Helena, however, knew that that was no life for someone as talented as as Bastila to live and gave her over to the Jedi Order. Afterward, Bastila's father continued his hunts, but when Helena became ill, he spent the rest of his life trying to earn money for treatments. The hunts continued to escalate in danger until Bastila's father went after the crate dragon. Helena had begged him not to go, but he believed the money was too good given her steadily worsening condition. In the end, Helena told Bastila to keep the holocron and that she was just happy to have reconciled with her daughter before she died. Tearfully, Bastila gave her mother all the credit she could muster and asked her to go to Coruscant to find some treatment if there was a need to be had. Helena asked Revan to take care of her daughter, and he obliged her request. It is unknown whether the Shan women ever spoke to Revan again, but Bastila did say their reconciliation brought her peace, and she thanked Revan for his help. Revan met the in-laws, and it was a complete success, making Bastila the second fully loyal meatbag companion. But there's still romance to be had, so we'll come back to Bastila and Revan's relationship later. Of course... Revan would have offered some of the thousands of credits he was sitting on by this point, but the game didn't give us that option, now did it? Still, it's funny to imagine the amnesia kid doing the Scrooge McDuck money dive after becoming the swoop champion of Tatooine in Paris and taking money from a bunch of Marks and Pazak. None of that matters now, though, because we've been on this intergalactic sandbox for far too long. Boarding the Ebon Hawk, the gang jumps jumps to take off, departing Tatooine for Kashyyyk. Currently, the world is run by Circa, which is, uses it for slaves and resources, which you know seems to be their modus operandi at this point. However, before we can overthrow those jerks on Kashyyyk, Revan and Bastila have to share a forced vision of the next star map. By now, you're no doubt familiar with how this works, and the Ebon Hawk approaches the next planet. Revan and Bastila each experience lucid dreams that act as forced visions, showing them generally where the next star map is located. Because of their intense force bond, Revan and Bastila can feel each other's presence in the visions, and then they wake up and have a chat about it. Karthanasi pilots the Ibn Hawk out of hyperspace and lands the ship on a circuit docking bay, while Revan and Bastila chat about their shared dream. It appears the star map on Kashyyyk is surrounded by trees, which, again, thank you for the stunning insight here, Jeopardy team. wonder if the force will tell them that the one on Manan is underwater. Anyway... Bastila and Revan talk it out and determine that they should investigate the local settlements to find more info on the star map. We add Zalbar to the party since he knows his way around and will include mission two, because why not? Location profile, Ebon Hawk. Now we're doing this here because there's no better place and we've put it off for far too long. Built by Core Galaxy Systems on Transil in an unknown year, the Ebon Hawk was a dynamic class light freighter worth an estimated 154,000 credits. Of course, it wouldn't be a signature Star Wars ship without some upgrades, and the Ebon Hawk is no different. Sporting an upgraded nav computer, enhanced hyperdrive, military-grade deflector shields, and two smuggling compartments, the ship could take a beating, that's for sure. While the Hawk is unique, while the Hawk is unique, other dynamic class ships were known to have fought for the Republic at Raltir, and at least two were involved at the Battle of Malachor V. Before coming into Revan's possession in 3956, the ship was owned by a number of exchange members, most prominently Davit Kang. While Kang owned the Ebon Hawk, it made weekly trips to Dresde on Korriban to pick up goods and supplies from the Sith capital. Then in 3956, Davit Kang moved the ship from, te- from the terrorist spaceport to his heavily defended uh, exchange compound. When the Sith quarantined terrorists, they allowed no ships to leave the pan- planet, and both Candrus Ordo and Kang believed the Ebon Hawk was the only ship on the entire world that could break the blockade. 
a theory that Revan and his companions put to the test after stealing the ship from Davit Kang's estate and fleeing to Dantooine after a brief firefight with Sith starfighters. It then transported the crew to Dantooine and now Tatooine and Dantooine and then Tatooine and now Kashyyyk and is present and is presently in, infested by Giska, which catches us up on the ship. You should get very comfortable with the Evan Hawk because it's going to be with us through Knights of the Old Republic 2 and the novel Revan. The turrets have and always will suck, however. And uh, briefly, Canon Alert 28. I think it's 28. Maybe 29. It's something. The book Black Spire by Delilah Dawson released last week, actually, uh, canonizes an Ebon Hawk of sorts. In that book, one of the characters notes a species of hawk called an Ebon Hawk, similar to how we have something called like a Peregrine Falcon. Uh, that's it. We don't have any more info on the bird or the reference. And while it doesn't confirm the ship in canon, it's still a fun little nod by Dawson. I mean, I guess it could not be referring to the Ebon Hawk or to the Ebon Hawk ship, but that seems unlikely. All right. Now our location profile for Kashyyyk. Kashyyyk is an old world full of mystery and overflowing with the Force. It seems counterintuitive and unfair given that Wookiees are rarely Force-sensitive, but they didn't ask us. The real question is, what did Kashyyyk look like before the Rakata arrived, and where did the Wookiees come from? If Wookiee legends are to be believed, they migrated to Kashyyyk somehow, though others hold that they have always lived on Kashyyyk, perhaps evolving as early as 2 million BBY. Well, that's all the stuff of legend and myth. The mysteries don't seem to stop when recorded history begins. In 36,453 BBY, one of the eight Thoyor ships in the galaxy activated on Kashyyyk and began gathering force-sensitive beings from numerous worlds to settle on Tython, where the Jedi Order was sub- subsequently founded. At some point after the departure of the Thoyor, but before 33. 1598, Kashyyyk's strong force signature drew the Rakatan Infinite Empire. The Rakata brutally subjugated the world, enslaved the Wookiee race, and began a terraforming project to make the world's agriculture suitable for Rakatan demands. Terraforming was overseen by a Rakatan supercomputer known formally as the Builder Forge, which monitored communications from the Rakata and adjusted planetary conditions accordingly. In 33,598, however, the computer received its final transmission from the Infinite Empire, and the forests continued to grow per the final transmission parameters for 241 years. In 33,357, the computer malfunctioned, and with no communication from the Rakata to fix the issue, the Rorschir trues grew exponentially. The Rorschers would grow so tall that the Wookiees would later make their villages high in the trees and use basket elevators to travel to the forest floor. Sadly, we have no idea what it looked like before Rakatan terraforming or what the true reason was for trying to change Kashyyyk, apart from the vague need for resources. After the Builder Forge malfunctioned, Kashyyyk would disappear from galactic history until the Circa Corporation came along. Those dates are great because you just have to reverse engineer them from like what the computer says about like 29,000 some odd years and you just add it to 3956 and you see where it puts you. And that's how we come up with those. In 4020 BBY, Zerka rediscovered Kashik and named it G5-623. Around the end of the Great Sith War in 3996, the Galactic Republic ceded the world to Zerka for their assistance in reopening the galaxy following Exarchon's brutal war. If you're keeping score at home, that means the Republic not only turned a blind eye to secret to Zerka's slavery, they actively facilitated it by giving them control of worlds for resource and slave exploitation. At some point, Zerka renamed Kashyyyk again from G5-623 to Adian following a poll of shareholders. In 3993, a Twi'lek Jedi named Gunhan Suresh was killed attempting to kill one of the last known Terentatex in the galaxy, which resided deep in the Shadowlands. 
by 3976, a village called Brookroro. Yep. Yep. There you go. I'm a Wookiee now. Have become the capital of Kashik. What? It's incredible. What'd you say? Uh, for, the, for the listeners, this is a village <laughs> called R W O O K R R O R R O. If you have any idea of how to pronounce that, email us. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm just going to go with Wookiee Yell the next time. Um, the village had beca- by 3976, the village had become the capital of Kashik, and like all Wookiee settlements, was built high in the Rosher trees and connected by numerous walking bridges. Below the capital was the, for- the forest floor, a mysterious and dangerous place called the Shadowlands, only accessible via wooden basket elevator. The Shadowlands held savage, strange, be- strange beasts and were completely devoid of sunlight due to the tall trees and evergreen foliage. Wookiees rarely entered the Shadowlands except when completing rites of passage or as a condition of, condition of exile. In 3976, a Wookiee named Thalbar, the youngest son of Freyr, learned of his brother Chundar's alliance with the Zerka. Chundar was supplying Wookiees as slaves in exchange for weapons, an act which understandably enraged Zalbar. Uh, Zalbar confronted his brother for helping enslave his own people, and the two fought, but in his rage, Big Z used his claws, an act forbidden by Wookiee traditions. Chundar was able to escape and told his father of Zalbar's claw use. This, along with being the eldest, meant Freyr would believe Chundar, rendering Big Z's complaints against his elder brother moot. For breaking the long-held taboo, Zalbar was deemed a mad claw by his father and was exiled from Kashik. At some point, Freyr learned of Chundar's betrayal and confronted him, but by then it was too late. Chundar had gained many Wookiee allies who didn't care about his crimes, and they forced Freyr into exile in the Lower Shadowlands. Chundar then became chieftain and made his alliance with Zerka an open policy, one that many Wookiees within his village hated but had no means to oppose. In 3961, Revan visited the world alone and was granted access to the star map, but deleted all access records before departing. In 3956, this is how Revan found Kashik as the Ebon Hawk touched down on a Zerka landing pad near the capital. Hi. So the second that Revan and company are off the Ebon Hawk's loading ramp, another Zerka docking officer named Janos Wurtka shows up harassing us for credits. Now, we already covered this in far too much detail last episode, so we'll just say that Revan uses a mind trick on the docking officer so he can get free parking. Once Revan is off the dock, it's time to play some rounds of Zack because you can't save the galaxy without minigames. After a few... <coughs> excuse me. After a few hands and making some quick credits, the gang runs into Comad Fortuna, who is on Kashyyyk seeking even greater prey than the crate dragon he and Revan took down on Tatooine. Really coincidental that we would run into Komat here, but it's the last we will see of him in game, so thanks for the good times, Komat. At this point, Big Z will tell Revan a little more about his past and his troubles on Kashyyyk. Zalbar admits he should have already warned his companions about his status as an exile, but couldn't bring himself to do it. He's still traumatized both by his brother's actions and his own. At one point in the dialogue, Zalbar even says that his exile was just because was just because for a Wookiee to use their claws as weapons is to act as little more than an animal. Revan promises to help Zalbar and Kashyyyk, if at all possible, as they continue along the walking bridges suspended thousands of meters above the forest floor. Revan, Zalbar, and Mission come across Janos Wartka's office and lab. Zerka scientists are working on various projects that range from ethically dubious to holy shit, how do you live with yourself? The worst of which is a junior science officer standing over an unconscious or dead Wookiee in a cell. All of this drives Zalbar to rage and he starts threatening to rip limbs off. Janus agrees to divulge everything he knows after some intimidation and forced persuasion, which even Bastila will use. Wurtka tells the companions all about Circa's operations on Kashyyyk, which were discussed in the location profile, including their deal with the chieftain of Chundar. That name further enrages Big Z, who is now also worried about the state of his father, Freyr. That was that was good. I like that. 
Moving into the great walkway toward the village, Zalbar admits to more concerns about encountering his fellow Wookiees. Then the trio of companions run into a patrol captain named Denno and his two Circa cronies, all of whom are standing over the body of a dead Wookiee. Denno claims that they put the Wookiee down because it got restless, and this is when the light side ribbon run gets very frustrating. As the Zerka guys insult Big Z and Wookiees generally, Revan can either ask Zalbar to honor his life debt and let Revan handle it the Jedi way, or he can let Zalbar rage and attack Denno, which incurs a minus four dark side alignment shift. Now, if it was up to us, we'd have had a cutscene where Revan uses the force to incapacitate the two, two goons and Big Z rips the patrol captain's arms off and uses them to beat him to death. Alas, there are no cutscene dearmings. As it stands, Lightside Revan is going to do like any good Jedi should, antagonize the three Zerka guys into shooting first and then kill them all in a hail of blaster fire and lightsaber slashes. Of course, Revan gets a plus four Lightside alignment bump by decrying Zerka slavery and charging into the fight, so at least that's something. As the group nears uh, Wookiee noise, they are attacked by three dark Jedi who sing a familiar song to the three we faced on Tatooine that we just didn't talk about. Something about Lord Malak being most displeased or whatever. They die like the red shirts they are, but at least we get four lightsabers and a bunch of lightsaber crystals from looting their still warm bodies. Don't worry, we're going to get to lightsaber customization soon, we promise. After killing those fools, the companions arrive at the village and are treated to a less enthusiastic greeting, a less than enthusiastic greeting from the guards who recognize Big Z on sight and haul all of them before Chundar. A loud shouting match ensues between Big Z, his brother, and Revan, with the chieftain enforcing his will on the outnumbered group. Chundar takes Chundar takes Zalbar as a prisoner and hostage and orders Revan to kill a mad Wookiee in the Shadowlands who's been a nuisance in order to free Big Z. So, this convenient pretense will allow Revan and, we'll just say, uh, Bastila and Karth to investigate the Shadowlands for the star map after they ride the basket elevator all the way down to the darkened forest floor. The group moves away from the basket and follows a trail until they hear a lightsaber's hum and the cries of battle. Alone in near total darkness, a human wielding a green-bladed lightsaber fights off four Katarn surrounding him in the darkness. Revan and company rush in, but the man has already finished off the last of the beasts. The old man is bald with a salt and pepper handlebar mustache and soul patch, and introduces himself as Jolie Bindo before inviting the group back to the safety of his camp. Jolie is an interesting, idiosyncratic old man who seems to know a lot about the star map and also knows how to shut down the force field that Chirka erected around it. Of course, he won't help Revan until Revan helps him defeat the Circa Postures, who seek tack glands so that they can synthesize Teresian ale. Revan agrees without letting on that he was totally going to do the same thing to help further missions companion loyalty quest, but we can probably pick one up along the way. No harm, no foul. In order to proceed to the star map, Revan, Karth, and Bastila proceed to the Circa Poachers camp, where a captain and five guards wait within a field of sonic emitters that keep dangerous predators away while they're activated. The comedians decide to play it cool and see if they can come to a non-violent solution like Bindo requested. If you enjoy a good cutscene, this just turns into Revan persuading two of the guards to give him codes for the sonic emitters, shutting them down and watching a wild animal stampede take out the circus scum. You know, the peaceful solution. Turns out Jolie didn't care anyway, he just wanted to see if Revan would choose a non-violent option. The eighth Jedi then joined Revan's party along with Bastila, since we will need her and the star map anyway, and they all head off to deactivate the Circa Force Field. Character Profile Jolie Bindo A Force-sensitive human male, Bindo joined the Jedi Order when he was very young. When asked about his age in Knights of the Old Republic, Bindo will respond, quote, Let's just say that I was a strapping young lad with a head full of hair, and Coruscant was a small town with a well. End quote. So now you know that wells are things in Star Wars. Jolie is a fascinating character both for his meandering stories of dubious import and because he's a proper gray Jedi. 
Even during his early years with the Jedi, Bindo was considered reckless and often defied the council to do what he felt was right. At one point, he and a friend stole the ship and covertly ran the blockade of the Eukata system, which had been instituted by their king. Eukatis was completely isolated and the people were suffering greatly, but the Senate refused to assist. So Jolie and his friend obliged. Because Jedi have no possessions and the duo had no outside assistance, they stole from the rich to help the poor of Eukatis, making covert supply drops on the planet after running the blockade. Bindo considered this theft to be a, quote, tax on the greedy, end quote, and was happy to run the blockade while the Senate and the Jedi sat idly by. On what would become his final run to Eukatis, Bindo's ship was shot down by a woman named Nayama, who happened to be very strong in the Force. Somehow the two fell in love and were married, with Jolie taking Nayama on as his apprentice, something the Jedi Jedi Council warned him against. Sometime prior to the Great Sith War, Bindo accompanied another Jedi named Andor Vex on a series of missions, one of which led them to the Demia system. In 3996, Nayama, like many other Jedi, was seduced by Exar Kun and fell to the dark side. She attempted to bring Jolie to the dark side too, but he would not be swayed, and the two had a fierce lightsaber duel. By the end, Nayama was brought to her knees, but Bindo couldn't bring himself to kill his wife and let her go. Nayama would go on to join the Brotherhood and was responsible for killing many Jedi in battle before she was killed near the end of the Great Sith War. Incidentally, of the 20 Jedi who joined Kuhn's Brotherhood, only three are named in Tales of the Jedi. Os Willem, Kredo, and Zora Luka. Nayama is the fourth and final named Jedi that we know from that group of 20. Bindu took the deaths hard and blamed himself for being too weak to stop Nayama's fall or kill her when he had the chance. The Jedi Council, however, wished to promote Bindu for learning his lessons the hard way and viewed the duel with his wife as his test for promotion. Bindo viewed such a suggestion as utterly ridiculous and thereafter lost all faith in the Jedi. Jolie exiled himself from the Order and spent a year with his closest friend Sunri before living as a smuggler for nearly 20 years. Before crashing on Kashyyyk around 3976, he then spent the next 20 years exploring the Shadowlands and later trying to access the Rakuten computer. After 3961, Bindo made... 152 unsuccessful attempts to access the Builder Forge. In 3956, Jolie Bindo is a cynical old gray Jedi with a lifetime worth of regrets, a lot of wisdom, and boatloads of boring, meandering stories, ready to help an amnesiac ex-Sith Lord stay close to the light. Interestingly, Jolie claims to have recognized Revan as the former Darth Revan early on, but said it wasn't his place to reveal the secret at that time. Back in the game, Revan, and Revan Bastila, and Jolie uh, find a series of force fields set up by Zerka. Bindo has the bypass codes as promised, but he can't proceed without telling Revan his long-winded theory about why the force fields are there in the first place. To be honest, that's something that we can relate to, but we digress. Uh, the barrier is easily bypassed, and the group finds a massive computer many times taller than a human with a holocron speaking interface with a resemblance of a Rakatan. The computer, the same Builder Forge that monitored Rakatan terraforming, blocks the way to the star map. In order to pass, Revan must answer three questions as part of his beha- as part of a behavioral configuration test. Basically, the Builder Forge is a common troll asking three questions to, to grant passage over a bridge, and the behavioral configuration is meant to determine if Revan's neural parameters match the device's internal specifications, which were programmed by an unknown individual very recently. Spoiler, it was Darth Revan. The questions follow the normal pattern that Bioware has used in countless RPGs since Knights of the Old Republic, a series of trolley problems dressed up with genre tropes. At least two of the questions are like that. The third is just creepy. The Builder Forge asks Revan about a scenario wherein he and Zalbar have just been charged with a crime and can either remain silent, squeal, or squeal because he doesn't trust Big Z. Now, that would seem fairly normal, except that the computer asked the question even if Big Z isn't in the party, and when asked how it knew the name Zalbar, it replies that it hears everything that occurs on Kashyyyk and well beyond. 
This implies the this implies the Builder Forge is also a giant wavelength radio astronomy observatory, not unlike the very large array in New Mexico in the United States. Regardless, Revan fails the fails the three question test because the correct answers would all require dark side alignment shifts, and he's just too good to lie to an AI to pass a stupid BuzzFeed personality test. So two ancient but very deadly droids are released, and the trio fights them off. Oh man, we're getting all sorts of good New Mexico goodness in here. We got the Trinity side, we got the very large array. It's a good, good. I mean, we got we got two. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Oh man, so the droids—they're fighting. It was good enough to let. So this fight is good enough to let Revan pass to the Starforge because, according to the computer. His emotions in battle matched the patterns found in the Builder Forge's data files. This is kind of funny since the computer was reprogrammed and had its access files wiped by Darth Revan five years earlier in 3961. The Builder Forge also gave out a bunch of those really specific dates that we mentioned earlier and said that Bindo and Zalbar's father, Frey, each tried to access the system in the past five years, 152 times and three times respectively. The Kashyyyk star map is just like all the others, a narrative device disguised as an astrogation chart, but that's three down, two to go. After finding the star map, it's time to meet Freyr, the supposed mad Wookiee Chandar wanted killed. Freyr attacks Revan immediately, thinking he and his companions are circus slavers. After a brief but fierce fight, Freyr is brought to his knees and asks to be executed instead of being sold into slavery. Revan, Bastila, and Jolie have no intention of doing either, however. Well, Dark Side Revan might, but our Revan doesn't do that because he's a good boy and explains the situation to Freyr, who agrees to talk after hearing that Zalbar swore a life debt to Revan. Freyr realizes the error he made by listening to Chundar and wishes to return and free his people. However, with the former chieftain labeled a Mad Claw, the Wookiees won't believe him unless he can show a stronger claim to tradition and destiny. With this in mind, he asks Revan to help him find Baca's Blade, a ceremonial vibroblade made from the hull of the first starship to crash on Kashyyyk. It is passed down to each chieftain for ages until one of them lost the blade in the hide of the great beast of the Shadowlands and was barely able to escape with his life and the hilt of Baca's Blade. Thus, Revan must hunt the great beast, also known as a Tarentatek, deep in the Shadowlands and slay it, a task that, like the Jedi Gun Hun Suresh, had tried and failed to complete 37 years earlier. We'll talk about the Great Hunt, the rest of the side quest, and the liberation of Kashyyyk next time. Because it's time for everyone's favorite poorly named segment, Point of Interest, What the Hell is a Grey Jedi and Why the Hell Should I Care? To put it technically, a gray Jedi is a Force user who falls into one of two categories. Either they are a Jedi who is strayed from the Order in some meaningful way, or they are a Jedi who walks the line between the light and dark sides of the Force without giving in and falling to the dark. A Jedi who did fall and became a Sith, like Count Dooku, was not considered gray, and neither were Jedi who fell to the dark side but were later redeemed, like Ulic Kaldroma. However, members of the Lost Twenty, a mythical group of 20 Jedi who became alienated and left the Order over thousands of years that also included Count Dooku, would be considered gray by a technical definition such as this, unless, of course, they fell to the dark side. There were also entire Force traditions or sects that were considered gray, including the Voss Mystics in the Old Republic, the Imperial Knights in the Legacy Era, and the Jinsarai in between. Great Jedi was also a colloquial term used to refer, refer to a Force user who walked the line between light and dark, even if they were never affiliated with the Jedi Order. In this way, the term is much like Dark Jedi, which was applied to a number of Force users who, had, who were never even in the Jedi Order in the first place, like some of the Dark Jedi we face in Knights of the Old Republic and Knights of the Old Republic II. But how can a Force user be gray if the light side is wholly separate from the dark side? Why do we characterize all Force users as Jedi unless they belong to another specific Force-based religion? Is the Force a god entity with its own plan or just another part of their physical reality? What are some examples of gray Jedi not named Jolie Bindo? 
Are there any in the new canon or is this all legend material? Does any of this even matter for your enjoyment of Star Wars? Is the Star Wars story group moving away from the concept altogether? Well, let's find out. Uh, But first, we want to thank listener at Paul Kreider for submitting this question to us on Twitter. And uh, if you have any more, uh, suggest them on Twitter or email us. It is, after all, a people's history we're working on here. So the first thing you must understand about Grey Jedi is that while those technical definitions provide a solid foundation for understanding the concept, they don't really mean a damn thing in practice. You can ask 10 fans for a list of Grey Jedi and you'll receive six different answers and four people staring blankly because they have no clue what that means. Further, the Grey concept is nebulous at best, having never been consistently applied to anyone in Star Wars except Jolie Bindo. Indeed, many Force users who are largely considered Grey by fans fell to the dark side, an act that violates the technical definition on its face. This includes Revan, Jason Solo, Galen Marek, a.k.a. Starkiller, and Cade Skywalker. Then there's Luke Skywalker in Legends and Canon. In the old expanded universe, Luke fell to the dark side and became the reborn Palpatine Sith apprentice for a time, and later caused his new Jedi Order to adopt great teachings, similar to those of the fallen Jedi Verge, for a short time following the Yuuzhan Vong War. In the new canon, Luke is nothing if not gray for most of The Last Jedi, and apparently during his exile, he was a broken amalgamation of Kraya's views on the Force and Jolie Bindo's cynicism about the Jedi Order. Then, of course, there's Bindo himself, who holds the distinction of being the only individual in the entire long history of the galaxy far, far away to voluntarily label themselves as gray. Though the phrase was originally applied to Qui-Gon Jinn by a Wookiee Jedi named Tavuka. There's no confirmation labeling Jinn as gray, nor was there any additional context applied. The point is that there are myriad disagreements about what constitutes a gray Jedi, and most fans don't hold to the technical definitions because it's a fictional universe and headcanon is part of the allure. But it's also because the technical definition is so narrow that it functionally excludes fan-favorite characters who, according to their backstories, straddle the line between light and dark. To better understand both the technical and general definitions, it may be helpful to think about the various orders of Force users as separate Force-based religious sects and not political or military regimes. This obviously includes the Jedi and Sith, but also the Barandu, Jin Sarai, Ang-Ti, and Falanasi in Legends, as well as the Ordu Aspectu, Guardians of the Wills, and Dathomir Witches in Canon. This seems like a more logical approach to the groups because it grounds our teachings and concepts we can fundamentally understand from the real world. In fact, one of the main narratives throughout Knights of the Old Republic 2 is that the Jedi and Sith are far more alike than they'd ever care to admit, especially in the ways in which an average galactic citizen views them. Atten Rand, a companion of the Jedi Exile in Knights of the Old Republic 2, sums it up best. Quote, the Jedi, the Sith, you don't get it, do you? To the galaxy, they're all the same thing, just men and women with too much power squabbling over religion while the rest of us burn, end quote. The Jedi and Sith, at least in that regard, are the same, monastic orders that follow competing religious interpretations of the Force. They fight an endless series of internecine holy wars that have killed trillions as collateral damage in their feud for religious and galactic supremacy, all while attaching themselves to different political institutions. Now, obviously, a corrupt democracy is better than an empire built on slavery, but just because one thing is objectively better than the other doesn't mean it can avoid critique. In this way, the two groups are largely like our religious denominations on Earth, except those monks wield unimaginable supernatural powers bestowed upon them by the Force, a deterministic god entity that is seemingly sentient and moves the fates and individuals of the galaxy according to its will. Well, that's all well and good, what exactly does this have to do with Grey Jedi? Well, hopefully it's easier to understand how a Force user falls into that gray area as a person split between two competing religious interpretations of God. Everyone knows people like that in real life, and it may be easier to understand how the concept of gray Jedi has been rightly expanded by fans. It would probably also help if we stopped calling all Force users by the name Jedi, but that's another rant for another time. Huh. 
So that does little to explain the fundamental aspects of what great Jedi are. It's a definition of the broader forces setting them in motion. So both the Jedi and Sith teach conflicting views on the Force that seem to directly contradict each other. Master Yoda famously believed that once a Jedi went down the dark path, it would forever dominate their destiny. Likewise, the Sith teach that anger and rage are useful emotions to draw upon, and to deny that power to become like Jedi was folly. So how could any being ever be said to walk the thin line between light and gray when those viewpoints seem mutually exclusive? The answer may lie in the concept of the unifying force. This theory, which was practiced by a tiny minority of force users throughout history, held that the force was one cohesive entity and that light and dark are simply two applications of its use. What matters isn't adherence to a dogmatic religious sect, but the force users' outlook at the motions when acting. It seems a more logical means of understanding and conceptualizing the force in some ways because it relates their actions to our own. Most humans on Earth have the capacity to both lash out in anger and exude deep care for other beings. Likewise, a Force user has the capacity to use their powers in hatred or for peace, but there's no functional difference between Force pushing enemies to create space and Force choking your enemies to death. Both utilize telekinesis through the Force to accomplish a goal. The difference is in how the individual Force user applies it. Luke Skywalker, for example, force choked a Gamoran in Return of the Jedi. The force choke didn't make him a darksider, he simply used the force in raids instead of along the lines of Jedi teachings. Emperor Palpatine is likely the most well-known proponent of the unifying force, a concept he taught to his one-time apprentice, Dragir, and she passed on to her informal apprentice, Jason Solo, the future Darth Cadus, while Sheev Palpatine won't ever be confused for a great Jedi. Both Vagir and Jason Solo are usually categorized as such, though neither would fit that technical definition. It may be, however, that the unifying force and great Jedi are more directly linked than these abstract notions. Indeed, if the force is a seamless continuum within which light and dark both exist simultaneously, then that narrow center that the great Jedi walk is the twilight of the force, as Lord Khan would put it in 1000 BBY. Uh, Kelsey already knows this, but, uh, I, you know, I get, uh, the good thing about writing this is you just get to, you like, you get to, <laughs> you get to beat a dead horse no matter, <laughs> no matter how dead it is. Uh, and, uh, you know, the unifying force is one of those things that, that I personally really adhere to for like a lot of like silly reasons, but also because it's the reason that makes the most sense to me. Um, and so like, that's, you know that's a little peek behind the scenes as to why that got thrown in there and why, why Kelsey's probably like, yeah, I've heard this before. Let's, uh, let's move it along. Uh, all right. So what, what is the, what does this all mean though? Gray Jedi represent a truly minuscule fraction of the force users to ever live. The idea that Jedi, that the Jedi and Sith are simply religious sects worshiping the same God entity may well be technically correct, but most fans don't see or discuss it that way. The unifying force is a theory that few force users could be said to hold and is totally anathema to the way that the force is typically portrayed with its rigid light and dark good and evil dichotomy. Not to mention our arguments tying the three concepts together are somewhat light on evidence. Then again, if the force isn't unified with a gray or twilight in the center, how does a being like the Bindu, who claim to represent the balance between light and dark, exist in canon via Star Wars Rebels? For that matter, how did three separate gray force using religious sects exist outside the teachings of the Jedi and Sith and legends. Moreover, if Lucasfilm is moving away from the concept of gray Jedi, as has been rumored, why introduce the Bendu at all? And then why bring Ahsoka Tano back with white lightsaber blades, which she created after cleansing the red lightsaber crystals of a fallen inquisitor in the Ahsoka book? Why have Luke, why have Luke Skywalker echo the gray teachings in the last Jedi? In the end, maybe the concept of gray doesn't really mean anything in the universe, and it's simply and it's just an interesting distinction we make between fictional characters in order to more fully humanize them. Isn't developing your own headcanon about deep lore part of the fun of this fictional world building? Although, if it helps us understand that the, that the Jedi Order sucks, maybe the gray, the gray Jedi are actually useful. Though the gray 
through the great Jedi, we can see that the Jedi, despite sometimes being presented as such, are not always the good guys and often allow many heinous practices to continue. Further, we can understand that while they do suck, they while they do suck, they still have the moral high ground over the Sith because that whole slavery and mass despotism thing. That would make the great Jedi similar to an ombudsman who investigates and prosecutes complaints against an administrative body. A way for us to deconstruct our heroes. And that was way too long of an academic exercise, but if you give me license to talk about Grey Jedi like that, that's what you're going to get. Grey Jedi, a I land am, of contrast. I'm so <laughs> for, for, for the public edit, editor Jedi or, or Inspector General Kenobi. Yeah. Um, oh, man. Uh, good, good stuff. This is, what, this is what the people listen for. I'm excited. So, <laughs> that can- that concludes um, our episode today. Thank you all for listening to A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we're going to liberate Kashyyyk from its occupation and the enslavement by Circa. We're going to discuss the Great Hunt and visit Manan to find the fourth star map and finally avenge Trask Olgo's death when we face Darth Bandon. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to FOTOR on Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for the five-star ratings on iTunes. Ratings and comments help the show, and we really appreciate them. You can follow us on Twitter at FotorPod or email us at FotorPodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show, sometimes at great length. I'm AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm Luke is Amazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you.